0: Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com.
2: No purchase necessary. VGTGL were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18+. This is the better version of the song than the one that is on the album in color. The song is I Want You To Want Me and it is the way better version of it. Because this one isn't on In Color. This one is on the 1978 live album Cheap Trick at Budokan. It's also number 426 out of 500 on the Spotify Ridge, The 500, with me, The King, Kaduga! Josh Adam Myers. What's up, you true dukes that have been tuning in since the jump? Lockdown, in your houses, quarantine, social distancing. Still listening to the record each week. This is the best time to do my podcast challenge. If that's what, maybe that's why it could be so much bigger if I started calling it a challenge. Do the 500 album challenge. These like dance videos on TikTok doing the 500 dance challenge. I love you guys. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing great, man. I'm really enjoying the quarantine. I'm having a good time. I'm not gonna lie. I'm staying really busy. I'm working out. I got the dog. If you do not have a good situation out there, I am praying for you and sending my love and hopefully you get through this and and everybody in your families safe and secure. All right, you guys want to find out what the fuck is up with this record? This self-produced live album came out on Epic Records by Rockford, Illinois' hard rock power pop band Cheap Trick. And it was recorded over two late April nights of 1978 in Tokyo, Japan's famous indoor sports arena. Originally intended to be an exclusive Japanese-only release because after three albums and a grueling tour schedule opening for bands like Kiss, Queen, The Kinks, Cheap Trick still wasn't breaking through in America. They were actually about a million bucks in debt. So fame and fortune seemed spooky. But a phenomenon was happening in Japan. Their first three releases went gold with number ones and top 10 singles. So late April of 78, with little to lose in America, the band went for their first tour of Japan to test the waters. When they landed, uh, they were greeted by five thousand screaming fans at the airport. Like they just got off the Southwest flight, came down, they grabbed their bags, and it's just, ah, ah. and guess what? Just like their heroes, the Beatles, Cheap Trick Mania didn't stop there. They couldn't walk down the street or even step out of their hotel rooms without screaming crazed fans chasing them to take pictures and rip off their clothes. In fact, hotels were kicking them out because of the thousands of fans flooding their lobbies and waiting outside for them to catch a glimpse. When they played those two nights at Budokan, they were almost drowned out by the screams of their frenzied female audience of 12,000. 12,000 screaming female Asian chicks. Just ah! You can hear it when you listen to this record. Recording the shows was the idea of the record company, who decided that every act that they had that went through Japan would put out a Live at Budokan album with Cheap Trick coming after Bob Dylan. They were already monsters on stage after years of solid touring, But that energy rarely made it onto the records until they released this in Japan on October 8th of 78. And this is the coolest shit I've ever read in my life. As Rick Nielsen recalled, we rode Coach on the way there and First Class on the way back. Booyah! That is the most Dougal shit I have ever heard. While obviously huge in Japan, Hip record stores in America soon caught wind, and the import record sold 30,000 of its eventual 75,000 copies domestically. So the label released six songs from it in America on a promo record called From Tokyo to You, which blew up and guaranteed the full album a domestic release in February of 79. It became Cheap Tricks, Best-selling album going triple platinum and its lead single, I Want You to Want Me, the better version, went to number seven on Billboard's Hot 100, their highest-ranking single to date. And I honestly have a guest today that is probably my highest-ranking, this is fucking cool that I'm talking to this guy. Ladies and gentlemen, the drummer from the cult Velvet Revolver and Guns N' Roses, The one and only Matt Sorum. He's a rock and roll Hall of Fame inductee, an environmentalist as well, not just a fucking rock star, and an activist who helps kids get instruments in between the grades K through 12. The dude is awesome. I'm a huge fan. I fanboy out at the beginning, depending on what edit he does, because I fucking was like, I was really stoned when we did this. It's the apocalypse. The interview is great. We're having a great time. You know, I love it. I'm so happy I got to do this. It's quarantine, so he's at his place in Palm Springs. I'm at my place in the Hollywood Hills, baby. Keeping a Dougal 100 all the time. Rate, review, and most importantly, subscribe to the 500 on Spotify. Follow me at Josh Adam Myers on all social media. Email the podcast at 500podcasts at gmail.com and follow the Facebook group, The 500 Podcast with Jam, and the 500 Podcast fan page where you got my buddy Evan controlling it. He's a meth addict, so it'll be fantastic. Get some fucking shit over there, people. And for all things 500, go to the website, the 500 podcastcom Well, nothing left to say, but... Here we go! Here we go! Here we go with number four. Bank, chang oh, 26 out of five hundred. A cheaper trick, a trick, a trick, a trick, a trick. boot a All right, enjoy. Hello there, Matt Sorum. Hello there, Matt Sorum. Are you ready to talk? Are you ready to talk?
1: Uh. Ah, ah, the The crowd roars one
2: i you have to understand how much i love you dude um i'm such a big fan i met you a few times uh first i met you in the parking lot of the guitar center on fucking sunset and i was like holy shit matt and you were like you gave me the rock fingers and that was it even though i probably looked like a stalker and then the second time i met you was uh at this fucking shit, it it was during Nam. You were playing at some gymnasium with like Johnny Depp and a few other people, and I was backstage with my friend Tall Wilkenfeld. Yeah. and you walked what? by, and you yeah. we, after you were done, you were like, "Yo, what's up, Tall?" and I and then you were like, "What's up, dude?" And You looked at me, and I was like, "Dude, that's the coolest motherfucker." i have ever seen dude so this is like and i saw you with velvet revolver at the 930 club before your album dropped and it was one of the greatest shows i've ever seen in my life but this is what i really wanted to talk about was when i first when we, we were waiting for you to set everything up i just googled your image and i found this picture of you in the band why can't tory reed is that it it's like you and Tori Amos were in a band together in the
1: eighties. And Uh, dude, your hair is fucking awesome. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. That was after an all nighter too. I did my own makeup too. (laughs) People haven't seen you, but uh, you have the greatest curls in
2: rock and roll, bro.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I had pretty curly hair. I, I, I somehow, I think it had to do with drugs basically, but, um, The more drugs I did, the curlier my hair got. Or I could yeah, drugs would make you get a perm. And I could yeah, I could hide I could hide drugs in my hair too, which was great because everyone would get. (laughs) It's like (laughs) I could go through like you know,
2: dude. I think a vial of ketamine just fell out of Matt's
1: hair. There was a time in Hollywood when if you didn't have the right hair, you couldn't get in a band. So that particular era in Hollywood was early eighties, and I met and I met Tori playing in a piano bar and uh we put a band together and i was basically the instigator and then we got signed to atlantic records by jason flom and i got i got no return phone call for like two months and i realized that they didn't sign the band they signed (laughs) Tori. oh they were like dude we cannot have
2: that drummer with the feathered perm there's no fucking way he's going to be able to resonate with ladies.
1: <laughs> he's no, he's distracting the audience, you know, it's like they're all looking at that <laughs> yeah, that dude. guy and it's you know. So, anyway, long story short, yeah.
2: Let's dive into the record. So, mm-hmm. tell me about yeah. when did you first hear Cheap Trick?
1: Well, I'm, you know, I'm a I'm a child of the 70s, you know. I was born in the 60s, but you know, my my upbringing was 70s, right? So, my my musical background my learning, uh, launching pad for being a drummer came from that era. So, you know, Cheap Trick came out a little bit later in the 70s. There was a bunch of bands I was into in the early 70s, Deep Purple, you know, Sabbath, of course, uh, you know, even Queen out of England uh, before before uh, Freddie cut his hair short. You know, they were yeah. the Killer Queen era and all that stuff. And then, you know, obviously Kiss was one of the first concerts I saw in 75. Great band. Uh, at the Long, Long Beach Arena. So when I when I discovered Cheap Trick was probably actually the record we were about ready to talk about because, you know, I saw them and I understood the imagery of it and everything. And, I and, you know, I, he- I remember hearing Surrender and that was probably the first big single that I heard, which is off the second album. Great song. Uh, yeah. And then obviously they made this live record that became their biggest selling record of all time. So you kind of couldn't get away from it. And, you know, after like, so after the Alive album, which came out in about 75, and then Peter Frampton, obviously the biggest, one of the biggest selling live albums of all time. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. I can't wait to Fram- dig into that.
1: Yeah. Which was
2: like 76.
0: 76- like That's
2: the only shit I know from that record.
1: <laughs> yeah. Which was like 76 or 77 around that era. Um uh, uh, basically live albums became a thing that bands did and, and released, you know, and I, I, I think the first live album I heard that I loved was made in Japan by, by deep purple, but that was early seventies. So yeah. So this is
2: 79. So like, so, so you're, you're hearing this from the first time you've already had all these different records come out from your artists that you love doing live records, cheap trick, you know, about you fuck with them, but then this comes out and what does this do to you?
1: Well, I think what it did for everybody in that era is we all love live music. And everybody was, you know, when I was a kid, you went to concerts, you know, and then you saw the band live. And and you got to remember bands like Queen were going to Japan and imagery of Japan was a huge thing in rock and roll when you were a kid. It was like, oh, my God, they're in Japan. But you would only see the picture in like Cream magazine or Circus magazine and you were just like you were enamored with, with the imagery of them hanging out in like Tokyo, walking with kids. And, you know, I remember seeing the queen photographs and it was so alluring to me as a kid. So when you heard about cheap trick going to Japan and here, you got this handsome guy, Robin Xander. Yeah. The two handsome guys and the two nerdy guys. <laughs> yeah, right? dude, it's like, I've never seen such a dichotomy of sexy and ugly.
2: Yeah.
0: yeah but that's <laughs> the, that was the
1: angle they played. And we actually stole that a little bit for neurotic outsiders. You know, we had uh Me and Duff were the two rock guys. And then we had Steve Jones and John Taylor were dressed in like Vivian Westwood suits. And we were always thinking about, we always thought about cheap trick, even though I don't think we were nerdy. We were just trying to kind of come up with some kind of gimmick. And that, you know, their gimmick became, oh, there's two handsome guys and there's two kind of weird guys. (laughs) And, but you would see the imagery. And then when you heard the fans, the way they laid that into the record, it just brought so much excitement from the original studio versions i mean the uh, you know i want you to want me was a bigger single from the live version than from the record um- oh
2: yeah and, and night and day too because like i i had only heard the live song uh you know in on the radio growing up and then when we already broke down their cheap tricks record in color uh, a few months ago and i was like oh i was so excited to hear i want you to want me and then you hear the regular version and you're like this is the cheesiest shit i have ever heard like where the fuck is the live like that fucking power
1: you know well they had, you know they had that they had that live loose thing and you know you stick a band in the studio and they're, you know they they just rewrote the song and they've played it you know maybe if whatever amount of time to get the take yeah and and it becomes sort of a little bit sterilized, I guess. So when yeah, you heard oh, the it was live, so record, sterilized, yeah, yeah, and it was a little more up tempo. It had a punky feel to it, but pop at the same time. And you know that album came out. That that song "I Want You to Want Me" was on the In Color record. But then you got to remember they they recorded uh, the live live from Budokan before the Heaven Tonight album came out. So those. Yeah. Yeah, you know, if you listen to have if you listen to live from Budokan there isn't a lot of heaven tonight on there. I think the only one they did on live from Budokan was uh, maybe surrender. Yeah, I,
2: I felt like you know what's funny that you're saying that is cuz like I said my only experience with Cheap Trick was the hits. And the album In Color, because like I said, we did it on this podcast. And so to really I, I didn't understand why people dug Cheap Trick the way that they do after listening to In Color until I heard at Budokan, because this album is real rock star shit, dude. Like I like you could just feel the energy of the crowd. You can feel Mm -hmm. the band vibing off of the crowd. And then you start researching it, not just knowing the songs, but dude, this album is in the library of fucking Congress.
1: Well, yeah. And you got to remember that in those days, bands released albums every year. Like, you know, labels were pressing to put, put records out. So when they released heaven tonight, I think that was like maybe the spring of '78. Now, Live from Budokan was recorded, I think, in April, and they released Heaven Tonight in May. So, they they re- they released Live from Budokan based on the fact that Heaven Tonight wasn't doing that great, and then and then they heard an album, they heard a live recording, and they're like, oh my god, we got something here. Plus, with all the energy that was going on with live records, like everyone knew. Frampton comes alive. So all the labels were like, let's put the live album out. We got the recording. It didn't cost us anything. Well, yeah, they put that out six months after heaven tonight. Yeah. And then they, then they re-released singles from the in color record. And, and so with the only difference being ain't that a shame. And uh, yeah, that wasn't, that was just a cover they did live, which became a big single for them too so I I, I was rep- I knew I knew the same songs you did I want you to want me, surrender but there's songs like "Clock Strikes 10," amazing yeah. amazing song, you know uh, California man," which is funny because they perform that at live in Budokan, but it's not on the first release it's only on the reissue.
2: You do the same. So, if that sounds
0: cool, you can listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com, and I'll see you there. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you
1: cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get
0: the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much FE Perspective don't have to wonder because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the
1: TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's
0: E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11.
2: What I love and especially cause you said it earlier, it was about Japan. What is it about Japan where their fans are just like batshit crazy nuts? Because what I was reading about cheap trick was that they were fucking like the Beatles. When they showed up there, they couldn't walk down the street. Girls are ripping off their clothes, et cetera. Have you ever experienced something like that? Like on a tour, was there a place where you were just like, you, you
1: felt like you were in the Beatles in your career? Well, in a region Brazil probably because when I when I first joined Guns N' Roses and and we played Rock and Rio in 91 and uh it's it's in my book all the stories that we were going to come my book was going to come out this month but we pushed it to August based on all this crap that's going on but plug it dude dude take this moment plug the book it talks about when I get off the airplane it's my first show we're playing 140,000 seat stadium (laughs) <laughs> and you know it's, here i a am
2: ridiculous number yeah.
1: 158,046 and, and we sold out two nights <laughs> so, oh my god uh so i get down to brazil and here i am i've just joined the band you know we're, we're in the middle of making usually illusions one and two which you know we went out and performed a bunch of songs but anyway we landed at the airport izzy me axel slash and duff They take us down through the bottom of the airport because there's about four or 5,000 kids out front, right? Screaming like crazy. And so they got to get us out the back and we're in these vans and we're going through this crowd and they're banging on the van and they're, they're they're climbing on top of the car. And I looked out the window and I go, (laughs) I look over at Izzy straddling. He goes, Hey, Izzy goes, welcome to the band. I go, man, this is like being in the Beatles. I'm like, you know, (laughs) And that's that's when I really felt that sort of fandom because you don't yeah. really get that in America, you know. I don't I remember being a kid and going to like the Long Beach Arena and like going to see Deep Purple and then going back by the backstage gates and waiting for the limos to pull out. Yeah. And and going, "Yay!" Hey! You know, but there'd only be about like 20 of us out there, you know? And Yeah, yeah. And you know, thinking you're going to get an autograph or something, but uh as a kid, but but that was how I felt there. And even in Japan, same thing. When we landed and we did the Tokyo Dome with Guns N' Roses, I remember landing and all these kids at the airport. And the Japanese fans were so amazing because they love to give you gifts. So they make little like they make little dolls of you and draw paintings and give you a bottle of sake and you know. I'm, just,
2: I'm just hoping that they made a doll of you but with the tori amos band hair they're like you're like no no i don't, i, don't no, that, I, 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 don't I had that shit no more i had the same curly
1: ass hair but a headband remember it was like crazy oh yeah yeah, yeah. and and I remember, it was the early '90s. It was sort of of course. A, you look in the you look in the mirror and go, "I look good." Now you look back and you are like, "Oh my god!" No you know? judgment, bro. Like, dude, I I have
2: I have wavy hair, bro. I use diva curl. I know what it's <laughs> all about, bro. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, I I don't think they had like flat irons back there or like straightening <laughs> shit. You know, I don't know. I mean, I mean, maybe I could have got something for like African African American hair, but I wasn't like. <laughs> I wasn't hanging around with Gilby Clark yet, you know? He Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> He's the guy. straightest hair I've ever seen in <laughs> my life. It's yeah.
1: The best. I wasn't hip to it, you know? So, <laughs> and I didn't really give a shit, to be honest. I mean, we were just drinking and having fun and, you know, letting it fly, letting our freak flag fly. But, so I felt like that, and I felt like that in South America. So I could represent, but as a kid watching Cheap Trick or Queen, if you remember the imagery, you're like, wow, Japan. And it was- such a, such a mystical place. But, you know, now I've played with Rob Xander a lot, we talk about, and, and they're still big there. They could go back to Japan and play multiple nights because they have that, that thing that sort of, it just resonated with Japan. I mean, the weirdest thing was going to Japan with Guns N' Roses and the band that was bigger than us, which was so bizarre, was Mr. Big, Oh, dude.
2: hold on,
1: little girl, show me
0: what she's done. To-
1: dude, that song fucking rips, bro. You they were see. huge in Japan. I mean, they could play massive arenas, and in America, you know, they did okay. They did, did pretty- yeah. They maybe they played nine thirty club, but they're
2: not fucking. You know, they're not doing arenas like like VR or fucking GNR, dude. That's what's so funny is that you can be enormous in tunisia but no one knows who the fuck you are in detroit
1: oh yeah i mean there's a there's a lot of stories about that so you got to go where the love is right i always tell you know people think oh man i remember having a conversation with pink one time and she was like man uh, i can't even get any gigs going on in america you know but they love me in australia and i I'm doing 21 shows down in Australia. I go, go for it. I mean, fucking do that every like that. Yeah, dude, go where the money is. Go where the love is. <laughs> who that's cares? the most
2: Eckert. That's the most Eckert Tolle shit I've ever heard in my life about being present. It's like nobody wants to hear you in fucking San Bernardino. Then go to fucking uh, Hanoi. It's a big wide world out there. Yeah, it's a big world. Yeah. So let's let's dive into the record, okay? Mm,
1: Yeah. All
2: right. So the album opens with "Hello There," uh, Peter. Play the first verse. I, in my in my opinion, this is the greatest opener in concert history, and I think it's mostly because of the story. So uh, it was written as a perfect concert opener, but it was mostly used because they wanted to play it during sound check, and most of the time they wouldn't get a sound check, so they used this song. They'd open up their shows so they didn't have to waste a song with the sound person uh, while they were adjusting their levels.
1: Well, that's right. I mean, and they understood once they did it, how epic it is. I mean, I still use it when Robin comes and plays with me. We use it as the opener because it's the best opener probably ever written. I mean, in my opinion. And then they got Goodbye, right? Which they did on the Buddha. Oh, which is great. You know, it's
2: good. But but this is, you have to keep this in mind. The first, my first real experience with the band Cheap Trick is Mm -hmm. listening to In Color. This is the first song I hear. I got it on my headphones and I'm like, Oh, I couldn't imagine what this would be like live. This would just blow the fucking roof off the place. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you a question, because you mentioned, you said something about how you, because I know you've jammed with Robin Xander in Kings of Chaos. Were there any preconceived notions did you have going into it? Like, were what was it like upon meeting them? Because you're playing with somebody you, you grew up listening to.
1: Well, you know, I, I, I played with Robin. Robin and come and guested with Velvet Revolver a couple times. I remember Bunny actually came out and played. And we, you know, we did a cover of Surrender with Velvet Revolver for a B-side. Like, we had to do a lot of B-sides, you know, because yeah. it would give, like, you'd have to do an extra single for Japan or something for, like, a, you know, a release. So we did, like, weird covers, but that was, like, a song we all loved. And so I remember one night... uh, I think we were in like someplace, well, we were near Chicago for sure. I think it was Alpine Valley or like, or one of those sort of venues. And, uh, and uh, Robin and, uh, and, and Rick and Bunny came backstage. And I remember them rolling in and I think they were still partying in those days. Cause we were like, we were all trying to be on the straight and narrow and they came in and, and I remember Bunny got up on my drums You know, and here I got this big, enormous rock kit and he's up there. And I came out front and played tambourine and sang. I stood in front of Slash's amp, which was like, oh my God, really? (laughs) like, (laughs) how loud? I couldn't even hear a word I was singing. It was, I was like, Slash, there's nothing but guitar where I'm standing. It's like, (laughs) so Rick Nielsen's over there and, uh, and he's playing all these crazy chords. Like, you know, he's got such a loose vibe. And Robin came out dressed in the dream police outfit, the whole thing. And, uh, and we did surrender. And that was kind of the time when I started to get to know him better because they were around and, and then he, I think Robin came and played with us again, uh, someplace else he got up with us. So we just started doing that kind of stuff. And, uh, and then I got, you know, I got his phone number and then I went on a tour in, in Africa with, uh, with my band Kings of chaos. And I invited Robin Sander. I had Billy Gibbons and Steven Tyler, you know, three of my, probably Jesus three Christ. of my favorite <laughs> bands out of the seventies. I mean, yeah. And so I, you know, when I put the set list together, it was just like, Oh my God, this is like, what? <laughs> like, yeah. you know, Jesus left Chicago and you're like, you know, waiting on the bus, you know, uh, you know, all the, all the classic, uh, ZZ, ZZ top. And then, yeah, and then I'm like, I'm like Steven, You know, we're not doing love in an elevator. I'm, we're doing toys in the attic. You know, <laughs> back in the saddle. You know, all the cl- all my he's favorite. like, here. I
2: could. He's like, I don't care. Just as long as
1: I can go
0: zippa zippa deeble dooza. You're like, all right,
1: we
2: got you, bro. Don't it? Yeah. yeah, you do that on like five tracks, bro. Yeah, and then <laughs>
1: and now I got now I got Robin Zander singing Tush, right? Because oh, that wow. was that was Dusty's part. You know, so Robin, I I get Steven and Robin and Billy all doing. uh, we did a you know come together Beatles because if you listen to his Cheap Trick, there's a lot of Beatles influence in that. And, and oh, a hundred percent, yeah, a hundred.
2: But it's it's very just just down to the harmonies, just the structure of their songs. Yeah,
1: and that was an easy one to throw together. It's like I say to I say to young musicians, there's a certain catalog of songs you need to learn, and if you don't know them, you know, get out of the business. You know, so <laughs> you got you gotta be ready. To play, yeah. uh, I want to take
2: you higher by Sly and the Family Stone at the drop of a hat. <laughs>
1: yeah, well, you know the the classics, right? Come together, yeah. you know, rock and roll, all those songs that are sort of just put that in your your repertoire and sure. But so anyway, we did those kind of things, and then Robin just became a really go to guy and one of the most humble guys I've ever met. He, you know, not to say that Stephen isn't humble, but he's the classic lead singer. You know, he's got to have a Uh, bottled water at a certain temperature and you know, things like that, (laughs) (laughs) three assistants and Robin's just like, Robin's a guy you got to remember when Cheap Trick got together, he was the guitar player. He wasn't, they were looking for a different singer. They were looking for a a guy to sing lead and they couldn't find a singer. He was going to be the rhythm guitar player. And the story goes is, you know, they couldn't find a guy and Robin was like, I'll sing. And he kind of became the lead singer by default, but, if you see some of the stuff from Budokan, he's on guitar and singing on a lot of songs, and then he started to go, he started to go up front as a front man later, and just sing with the microphone and you know, and do that kind of thing. But so so, Robin, I always my classic thing is lead singer disease. What is that? LSD. And what I say is, if the guy never had to carry an amplifier or carry equipment into the venue and he's the lead singer and he just shows up and says, where's my microphone? That's where you get the, that's where the problem starts. It's like like three tabs of LSD. (laughs) So you look at a guy like Robin Sander and you go, Oh, that guy huffed gear. Right. Yeah. You know, he had the, he had the band van and he owned, I believe the story goes, he owned the PA. So, they oh, would, then you're 100% in the band then. Now the he's, a, <laughs> he's a guy who's huffed gear. He's lifted gear. He's, he's gone. He's a yeah. yeah. And that's my little French bulldog. And uh, so basically, that's why I think he's just such a genuine guy. But at the same time, I don't feel he gets the respect he deserves as one of the greatest rock singers in. He really doesn't.
2: He really doesn't. Uh, but you know, it's, it, I think it's just like with why we're doing this podcast is a lot of people just, you know, in my age group, I'm 40, they probably never really
1: listen to cheap trick. They know the hits and that's about it. And, you know what I mean? It, like I said, he's one of the greatest, in my opinion, one of the greatest rock singers. If you listen to the range of his vocal, it's way up in the stratosphere. It's
2: in, it's fantastic. Yeah.
1: And, and, but He's never had that sort of like David Lee Roth, Steven Tyler, put yourself out there. Yeah, hey man, here I am. Whoa, yeah. You know, he doesn't like, it's not like he doesn't sell himself, but he just sings and plays rock and roll. And they're it for, for me, Cheap Trick is a working class band. They're from the Midwest. They're like, they're a band that just tours, plays. To this day, they're still on the road, just going every night.
2: Let me ask you a question because you you mentioned something. You were talking about, like, LSD. You were talking about, like, you know, Xander and and just being this guy's guy, being a part of the band, schlepping. But you also played with two of the biggest singers that I think have that that myth of being the LSD. Like, you know, how, how is that, like... You know, when you see play somebody like Robin Zander, and then having played with two guys who are as talented as as anybody ever could be, but also just have these stigmas about them, how how do you see that difference?
1: Well, it's it, well, it's interesting because those guys become bigger phenomenon somehow because there is this sort of you know wacky craziness around them, right? Which makes yeah. them a whole other level of the 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 classic rock and roll lead singer. They've got this 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 other stuff that you hear about you know yeah, and then yeah. and then it, it you know being in guns and roses that was a dangerous rock and roll band you never knew what you're gonna get from axel rose right so he's gonna come out and he's gonna give you the show he's gonna give you and you don't know if that's gonna be good or bad or otherwise so it never was bad don't get me wrong when i was in the band if he was in a bad mood that was a great show <laughs> it was like yeah you know all energy went into the what what we did on stage and it, it you know, there was nights we went up there and we weren't even talking to each other, but man, we would throw down because for rock and roll, you 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 would channel that energy into that performance and you could be pissed off and I could smack the drums twice as hard or whatever I wanted to do, yeah. right? So when Axel came with that kind of energy, it was like, uh oh, watch out, this is gonna be some hair-raising shit, right? And and There's great attributes about that. I look back in retrospect, and why would you want the guy any other way? It's like same thing with Wyland. Like Scott could come out one night, you'd be like, "Whoa, what's going on?" But and you know, you wanted to kind of go, "Dude, can we kind of like you know pull that together?" But but it just didn't go that way, and and you know, unfortunately, that was a different sort of thing. Scott was being dri- drawn by different sort of energy, obviously, yeah, you know, yeah. darker energy, but, but man, he could be great some nights. He would come out and you'd just be, oh, oh my in God. In my
2: opinion, in my opinion, I mean, well, first of all, like as I'm a comic, but I also like do all the music shit, hearing Guns and Roses in 1987 played on DC 101. They played the whole record. That was one of the big life-changing moments. The other one was hearing STP Core, and that was when I was like, Oh, I can be a lead singer and I can be as cool as that motherfucker. Cause I don't think there have ever been two singers that are as talented and in their genres and as cool, in my opinion as Scott Weiland and Axl Rose.
1: When well, Scott I, was
2: perfect, he was perfect.
1: You, you got to look at the gift of where they came from, their songwriting ability. You know, Scott could sing a melody in like five minutes and you go, Oh, that's, you know, Oh my God. And lyrically, you know, he, he had a cool sensibility with lyrics. Same thing with Axel. Axel, if you go back and really dig deep in Axel's lyrics, you know, here you go. They're coming out of the hair hair era, right? But there's there's so much depth within the lyrics, and he's able to do a song called Coma, then turn around and sing a song called Sweet Child of Mine, right? So he he would understand the simplicity of a lyric that's going to resonate to to a big audience with a song like Patience or Sweet Child of Mine or whatever, but but he's able to go deeper too. So that was, you know, there's a lot more to when you think about the guy than just the front man because he, you know, he had all this this stuff inside that he was able to bring out lyrically. And that's what made that band still to this day have that catalog that was, wasn't was long-lived. It wasn't a lot of records.
2: No. If you really think about it, it's two, it's two records. Really, really three. But you know, because you use your illusion. But it's like the there's so much epic shit on there. It's just it's just filled. Like you could play one of the deep deep cuts from Guns and Roses, and no one would give a fuck. They'd be like, this song rips just as hard.
1: And you know, Wyland and his attribute was, you know, he was always trying to dig deeper on the art fact. You know, he was looking for Bowie, and you know, I mean, him and Axel, Axel loved Elton. That's why we did November Rain. That's mm-hmm. you know, he. He looked to the greats for, as we all did, and we're talking about this era of the seventies. You know, we all grew up on the music we're talking about right now, Cheap Trick, all the greats. And you know, I remember going to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and thinking, "Man, this is not right. I should not be getting inducted before Cheap Trick and Deep Purple and yeah, you know, all these bands. You know, this is this is weird because as a musician coming up these are your heroes and now like he asked me the question about robin i'm like now he's my friend i can i can call him he he wrote a a thing on the back of my book you know he, he gave me a quote you know and yeah that kind of thing and that's that's for me that's that's like bucket list stuff i'm like i've had this great career but at the same time i've been able to play with my heroes and Oh, dude, it's I couldn't
2: agree with you more like the people that I've met since I started doing this. That's what that's Bill Burr is one of my best friends. And he has this quote because we were doing something. You know what it was? We were actually doing the goddamn comedy jam at the Roxy and uh, Dave Kushner. Is is homies with Bill and now he's a good friend of mine too. And we did uh an ACDC song with Burr on drums, Kushner on guitar, my band playing the rest of the parts, and me singing. And I remember I just looked over at Bill and I was like, This is the coolest shit ever. And then afterwards he came up to me, he's like, Yeah, dude, see see what happens when you follow your dreams? Cool shit.
1: Yeah, that's right. Cool shit happens. Hey, this is Steve Choi, host of the Musicians Guild Podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network.
2: Hey, what's up? My name's Lurk and I'm the host of Lamgoat's Van Flip Podcast. Every week I have in-depth conversations with bands from all over the scene, big and small. We also like to keep our finger on the pulse and showcase up and coming bands on the show as well. So come check out Lamgoat's Van Flip Podcast. All right, listen, let's let's go into a couple more tracks and then we'll get to some facts. I know because I know you gotta get out of here. All right, so we're gonna skip the second track, go on to lookout. All right. So this was originally recorded for the debut album and is one of the two previously unreleased original songs from that record demanded that they were they put it on the album. Peter play just a little smidge of it. There is somewhere,
0: in the world.
2: This is just a song uh, Robin wrote about trying to get laid. And you've heard the stories about cheap trick, but I wanted to ask you because you have the autobiography coming out. What is the craziest tour
1: story you can tell me? Oh man. You know, we, <laughs> we, we spent almost two years editing my book. Cause you know, the so shenanigans, the, the shenanigans story, the sex, sex, drugs and rock and roll stuff. I was like, I was like, oh man, I, okay. I guess they're going to get the fact that, you know, I was with a lot of girls and did a lot of drugs and, you you great so- hair. <laughs> <laughs> do I have to tell like 20 of those stories? No, let's just tell like five. So, yeah, dude. you know, that was the hardest thing about writing the book was which stories do I cut out? You know, like I cut out all my sort of like Charlie Sheen era stuff, you know? Oh like, yeah where, yeah, where does that fit in? Well, that's just straight up, you know, debauchery, <laughs> but but I mean, there's just so many great ones, but a lot of the craziest stuff happened in South America. um you know, we were involved in probably one of the first stadium tours of South America, you know, going all the way through Venezuela and Colombia and uh Chile, and we were you know we played countries no band had ever played before, really. I mean, with the exception, even Queen had only played in Brazil and I think Argentina. So here we are going on a, this mad 50,000 a night stadium tour. So we, we land in Venezuela, Caracas and, you know, we've got interpreters everywhere we go. You know, we've got these people that are able to, you know, because in those days there wasn't a lot of English language at all down there. I'm talking early nineties. So of course, I hook up with the interpreter who's this beautiful Venezuelan girl. And, Why wouldn't you? Of course. <laughs> Bilingual. I, I end up in the jungle of Venezuela with this with this girl and this taxi driver, and we find cocaine for $3 a gram. And Fuck. And I'm like- Yeah, dude. <laughs> I'm like, well, give me 10. Give me Diez, amigo. Cocaina, yeah. amigo. Uh, Diez. <laughs> so the band can't find me. I'm basically gone, and- one day t- blur turned into three and here we are doing this massive stadium gig and they they end up I mean, there's no gps in those days <laughs> so you know it's not yeah, like you're you could, gone dude yeah you uh, are gone <laughs> it's not like you tracked me on my phone you know it's like so they find me on a balcony of this hotel and i somehow got a hold of like raw uh caribbean rum and there i am and Basically, they throw me in the shower and, you know, here, I'm fairly new to the band at this point too. So they're like, uh-oh, <laughs> right?
0: Yeah, like, you know, you know.
1: And the one thing about Slash that I always loved about Slash is, you know, it was, he had the Keith Richards philosophy. It's like, if you're going to party all night and sleep in a chandelier, at least he could show up at the gig and and do a good job. You know, don't Yeah, dis- yeah, yeah. <laughs> so... So basically I make the show, we play the show in Venezuela um, and we fly out to Colombia. So we've got this private plane. Well, as soon as we take off the military bombs, the airport and and, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. Dude, that is the most rock and roll shit ever. It's like,
2: it's it's like, when did this plane ride turn into a scene from Con Air? Yeah.
1: and, And military coup, of of the government, right? So and you red know, dawn the, <laughs> the president and his family and his daughter, who's super hot, were at our show. They they were there. And I remember them leaving. And then as soon as we left, it's like, did they wait for us to leave before they bombed the airport? It's like <laughs> what? We and must
2: protect Axel Rose. We was, must protect Izzy.
1: Yeah, it was a pretty big <laughs> deal we were there, I guess. So we land in Columbia, we get off the plane I'm in an SUV with about four bodyguards. We've each got an SUV. It's crazy. And they all have guns. And I remember we pull up to the hotel and there's, there's armed military surrounding our hotel. And there's a tank in front of the front door, a tank. And I said to my manager, Doug Goldstein, I said, Doug, what's with the tank? <laughs> And he, he says,
2: like, we thought you guys would want to ride it out on stage tomorrow night. I don't know. why. Well, know. He no, the he actually said
1: the, t- the tank is there to protect you guys. I'm like, what? <laughs> so, and he says, yeah, there's a lot of kidnapping here. There's a lot of people being kidnapped. <laughs> I go, needed a tank. Yeah. So we, we're, we're here. We are in Bogota, Colombia. you know, and we can't leave the hotel. So we have a, you know, we order in, if you will. And, uh, that's in the book. All I'm going to say is we order in, but buy the book, and the story's great. And then we party, and we, then we go and do the we. We have a problem with the stage. The stage collapses in in the stadium. We're supposed to do two nights, fifty thousand seats. The stage collapses. So. And and the gig, the gear is stuck in Caracas, Venezuela. So we have to cancel, one of the stadium shows. Well, unbeknownst to us, the promoter tells the fans, your tickets are good for the one show. So now we've got 50,000 kids inside the stadium and 50,000 kids outside the stadium trying to get in. And complete mayhem. Well, we're we're going through again in some... I think we're in vans, you know, and we're, we're going through and we see this happening outside, basically a riot. and We go on stage and the... The tour was in November because that time of the year is basically their spring, you know? So we're, we're on stage about 45 minutes in, we're playing November rain and there's now the stage has collapsed. So they rebuilt the stage. So there's no roof over us. There's no lighting trust. It's just like makeshift. It's super third world, like not in a good way. And, we're like, I'm pretty scared to go out there, to be honest. Now, my manager sort of just pushes me and says, it's going to be all right. Get out there. Knock them dead. You know, that's like, <laughs> yeah. oh, my God. Yeah. OK. Uh, so we get up and we're playing November Rain, torrential downpour. Right. Like it had to happen. It's like, the song you're playing. You're you
2: you you're apocalypto conjuring it, speaking in tongues.
1: <laughs> yeah. And So we leave. You know, we got to leave the stage. It's, it's not even we can't even keep playing. It's so bad. Well, the place riots and they go crazy and we can't go back out. So we end up going back to the hotel and our manager says, okay, everyone pack up. We're getting out of here. And we're like, what? So we, he goes, yeah, we got problems. The promoters are coming. I go, the promoters? And in those days, there was no Live Nation. It was none of that shit. It's yeah. like, who did you so do the promotion them. with? It was all cartel, like hardcore and <laughs> here we, we are escaping the drug the, cartels of it's Bogota. Like, yeah, Club. It's
2: like, we wanted to hear the song "Estranged." Uh, you did not uh, fulfill your contract, <laughs> so we kill you.
1: <laughs> yeah. So in my book, the story continues. It gets worse and worse and worse. We fly out of Bogota, Colombia. Now we're in the Andes. And do you remember? Do you remember the, the movie uh, "Alive"? The book. Yes. Yeah, so we're dude. flying. Well, you, over guys, the, you crashed, and then you had to eat Izzy. Yeah, well, we're flying over the Andes and I'm saying, if we do die here, who's gonna eat who, right? <laughs> <You're> like, <laughs> and I'm eating Izzy. So anyway, the it gets even juicier as we continue through the country, uh, the the, the continent. I remember getting back to LA and I was totally frazzled. Like it was really what, one of the scariest tours that I've ever been on in my life. And and everything was just sort of like in disarray. And I remember running into Anthony Kiedis and he goes, yeah, man, I can't believe it, man. Like our tour got called off because of you guys. Right. And I'm like, fuck you, Anthony. I'm like, like, go ahead, go down there. Be my guest. I said, here we are paving the territory and Anthony, you know, he's an interesting character and, (laughs) and, uh, you don't know what you're going to get from him. But, uh, I I go, dude. Be my guest. Get on your airplane. Go down there. Have fun. I'm just telling you, it's no man's land. It's like the wild wild west down there. So yeah, yeah. In those days, you know that shit was just not really organized. And I remember taking those countries and and playing them. And now now you can go down and do a gig. It's all Live Nation and all squeaky it's clean. Safe, yeah, you know. But yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot of that stuff in the book. So. Get the book,
2: everybody, when it comes out. All right, we only got a couple more uh, minutes for this, so I just want to play my favorite part of this entire record. Uh, It's on the song Need Your Love. So what I loved about this song, and it's a lot of shit that you had said too, is that it starts slow with like a Beatles-like medley, if you want to call it that, and then halfway it just Raves up like some sort of like AC D C shit with all these incredible solos. But I wanted to play this is the most dougal shit I have ever heard in my life. Peter, play seven thirty-seven on the record. That, in my opinion, is the reason this record is on this list. The 500 Greatest Albums Rest. That is yeah. the best fucking part, in my opinion, of the, the entire record. And if it wasn't illegal for us to play the full two-minute build, like I yeah. would play the whole fucking thing. Dude. <laughs> yeah. All right, me- one Hit Thunder is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know. Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods. Let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. So you listen to this record. What's your favorite song on this record?
1: Man, I got to say, I I think Clock Strikes 10 is probably a, a very, like, I, it's not a deep cut because it's one of my favorite Cheap Trick songs. But uh, yeah, this
2: is this is and this is their encore on the record.
1: Yeah, this is like this
2: is what they end the show with because they already did Goodbye. They already did Surrender, which, by the way, if anybody fucking knows uh, the, the opening of Surrender, the Beastie Boys took uh, and used as their intro for Jimmy Jam, which is the first song off of uh, check your head and, and that was what was really cool when I listened to this I was like holy shit all right but back well, to, I, I love back to- I love
1: clock strikes 10 like but for instance like when Robin comes to play with me you know obviously I'm putting a set list together and I kind of look at it like okay we're here to entertain this is what my band does we're here to entertain let's give them the hits so yeah you know we play I want you to want me we do surrender got to do those and then we do uh, we do ain't that a shame because that just works really well. I love the ending of that live the way they do the end. Yeah. So we do that whole round at the end where everyone takes a solo. You know, with that, uh, we do that for a while, which is so fun. And then, and I'm like, should we do California Man? I'm like, uh, people, I don't know how many people that it's a little deeper cut for people that aren't us right like to just please the audience basically so we had you know we do dream police because that's another just uh straight up epic cheap trick hit right what's better
2: what's better dream police or dream warrior by (laughs) Dawkins? nightmare on elm street 3 soundtrack well
1: (laughs) dream police
0: dream Dream Police. That gonna dream, no. I was
2: hoping
1: that, you'd center, that, that middle section with the strings and that odd time signature on that yeah. particular song, you know, playing that properly, I tell every guy when the guys come in, you know, if it's Duff on bass or Robert DeLeo or whoever I'm playing with. Fuck. I'm yeah. like, okay, guys, check out that middle section. That's not 4-4. And it goes wacky. And I go, and... Coming back into the outro, I mean, those guys are just so musical without even knowing it, you know? It's it's just a, a great band, and in my opinion, needs a lot more uh, accolades. And when they finally got in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I was so happy th- uh, for them because the underdog kind of, un- un- uh, uh, you know, unspoken sort of n- – there's never been any ego in front of Cheap Trick, you know? Yeah. It. That's what I love about them.
2: Dude, great. And, and and such a great way to end the show. Like, they've, they've just rocked, I don't even know, 16,000 Japanese screaming teenagers and 20-somethings. And then they come out, they play their hits, they fucking kill it with this song, uh, which is great because this song is about partying. And it's about, like, pretty wild weekends. And I wanted to ask you... Because you seem to have slowed down a bit just in your parting and your crazy nights. Why did you slow down?
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, my liver. <laughs> <laughs> I call him Ted. <laughs> uh, lawyers are expensive, jail is not fun. Uh, I've done all that. It's all in the book, but um, <laughs> it's on Amazon. It's called Double Talk and Jive. Which was uh Fuck yeah, it is. Double Talk and Jive is the name of the book. And uh pre ordered on Amazon. And uh basically I you know, my body just started telling me I you can't do this anymore. And uh funniest thing is I do have a beer coming out though, and I'll let you know. It's gonna be at Bristol Farms. <laughs> uh Fuck yeah, dude. And guess what it's called?
2: Uh Permed
1: <laughs> The drummer beer. <laughs> Fuck yeah. The dude. drummer. And it's coming out of Brazil. It's Belgium made uh, style. Dude, you
2: love Brazil. That's one thing anybody's gonna take away from this podcast is that you fuck with South America. Well, I'm down 90%. there ninety
1: percent. I'm down there. I'm down there about five or six times a year. It's like like I say, go where they want you, go where the love is. And of I course. I do a lot of business in Brazil. I make records down there. I just made my beer there. I'm doing a, a bunch of cool projects out of Brazil because you know the people are amazing. Uh, very passionate. And still, if, if any, you go down there and play a rock show, and they they go nuts. They just love it. They just love rock and roll. And
2: yeah, I feel like I feel like every other place around the world besides America gets rock and roll and knows how to go to a rock and roll concert and fucking like thrash. Yeah. Whereas like in America, we're so boring
1: at shows. Well, like Germany, you know, you think about Germany, they're like the the the, the territory that loves heavy metal, right? And I remember going and playing uh, with the Hollywood Vampires, and you know I played with Motorhead for a short stint. I don't know if you know that, but I was in—I I was That's in not- Motorhead. I actually played my first show was at the Nine Thirty Club in two thousand nine. I replaced Mickey on drums for about a month, so I went out with Motorhead and we opened in the Nine Thirty Club, and then we went to Roseland and New York and did all those size venues. So you know, here we are doing Ace of Spades and, you know, Overkill and, you know, all the great songs, you know? Uh, And uh, so the Hollywood vampires decides they're going to do a version of Ace of Spades, you know? And I'm like, okay, guys, make sure you learn it right because the Motorhead fans will kill you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I remember thinking that when I joined Motorhead, if I don't, if I go up here, you know, I started growing a beard. I didn't take a shower for about a week (laughs) (laughs)
2: sort of hanging out of the rainbow room yeah i mean i love lemmy
1: was lemmy was my buddy called me up and asked me to play drums i'm like oh man what an honor i go you don't even have you don't even have to pay me do i have to pay you or what's the deal so ended up going to germany with the hollywood vampires and before we go on stage i'm like i don't think i think we should cut ace of spades from the set tonight and 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 they were like well why i mean johnny depp's like well why you know i'm like well Because if we fuck up, they're going to kill us. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I remember being in Mannheim, Germany with Guns N' Roses and uh, Nine Inch Nails opened for us. And the the crowd hated them. 75,000 seats. And they just booed the whole time. I remember thinking, there's certain countries, if they don't like you, they'll let you know. It's like, you know, I remember opening for Metallica with the cult when I was in the cult. We went out one night. There was ten rows. The first ten rows had their backs turned to us, flipping us off. <laughs> like, that was during just that was during Justice for All. You know they could give a fuck about the cult. They, they were yeah, like they
2: didn't they didn't want to see you. They didn't want to see you. They, how were, they wanted
1: where is where is fucking uh, James Hetfield? You know, seek and destroy. In 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 1989, 99% yeah. guys in the audience. Definitely, a, a a portion of them were probably into Satan. You know what I'm saying?
2: <laughs> it's like, yeah. It was, oh my
1: God, yeah. I'm dude. I'm still into Satan, bro. <laughs> Come
2: on, you're not into Satan, bro. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you, Beelzebub's not your homie. Hey, I I wanted to I wanted to ask you a question because usually we'll do facts and and just because I'm having so much fun talking to you, I, I just wanted to always ask you this because you've had such an incredible career and you've played with I mean you just you played with like two people that like I said before changed my life and you've had such a storybook career playing with the greats what's the one show what's what was the what was the one show that you've done in your career that you feel like was that perfect moment just it was just like it's almost like the universe was just being like I love you Matt Sorum you have this
1: moment oh man I mean so many highlights. Uh, probably one of my greatest experiences was the Freddie Mercury tribute, which was done at Wembley stadium. And we were invited to open the show and it was us and Metallica. And then uh, queen came out and you could watch it on YouTube. It's probably one of the most incredible shows. I mean, backstage was David Bowie, you know, Annie Lennox, uh, Robert Plant, Elton, Elton and Axel did Bohemian Rhapsody and just, you got to watch it. Oh, I will. They just crushed it. And uh, I got to say that night was just sort of like, I remember meeting Elizabeth Taylor. It's in my book. I, I drank with Liza Minnelli and George Michael. <laughs> it's like, it's like, like just one of those nights that you just will never, ever be able to, it was sort of like like being in a dream world. Yeah, You know what I mean? walking out going, wow, you know, Wembley stadium sold out. Uh, But, you know, I would like to, you know, when I look back at, especially Guns N' Roses, it's just sort of a surreal feeling. It's like almost like watching a movie on somebody else's movie, like, and you're in it. It's, it's just, it's just so weird. And, you know, the fact that we're sitting here and, you know, I'm out in Palm Springs and, got two French bulldogs and hanging out. And One of them's got diarrhea, sh- right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she does. She's a little sick.
2: Dude, if, if you were and, with me, man, if we would have been recording this at the studio. I would have given you some yeah. flangly. I think it's called flangy. Cause my dog shit all over the floor like a few weeks ago. So they stocked me up on medicine for, um, yeah. all right. It's so weird. It's this- going to the vet right oh, now. It, you know, it's weird thought, doing it. everything. That's why like usually, usually we would done facts. We would have done all this shit. Uh, but it was like so much fun to talk to you and I know you got to go. So I will be So to close this out. I just want to ask you and I want to thank you, man, Mm -hmm. like from the bottom of my heart, Matt, like, dude, I, you're a fucking homie. I I love everything you do. I'm such a huge fan. And the fact that I got to sit down and talk to you for a few minutes during this Mm -hmm. crazy Mm -hmm. time that we're all dealing with being able to chill with you right now made me forget that the world was falling apart. (laughs) Like it was that perfect in my opinion. Um, So what? So before we go, give us your final thoughts on Cheap Trick live at Budokan.
1: Well, Cheap Trick live at Budokan—one of my favorite records of all time. Like you said, top 500 rock and roll albums or albums ever. Um, it just captured the sheer energy of a true rock and roll band—four guys playing music together—and that's what resonated with people. Going well here's four guys on stage live and the moment was captured and one of the greatest live bands of that era. And, uh, it, there it is. If you have it on vinyl or if you have if you're streaming it or whatever you're doing, you know, sit down and play it on vinyl one night. I have it on vinyl. Get yourself a, a cocktail or a, roll yourself a joint or
2: do both or (laughs) do a bump of ketamine if that's what if that's what you're into
1: bro do ketamine hey man if it was a double album (laughs) i would roll my joint in the double album that's what i used to do when i was a kid i would just take the double album get the seeds out right yeah roll that and use you know so roll joint Listen to it on vinyl from the beginning to the end. If you can get out during this
2: apocalypse and get it on vinyl, watch somebody. like It's like, I'm going to risk my whole family's health and safety to go out and get cheap trick at Budokan.
1: Well, you could get it online. You could get that stuff deli- delivered from Amazon or one of them, but yeah, uh, you know, if you got that capability, but uh, thanks for having me, man. Oh. I'm going to jump. I'm gonna jump on a Zoom chat for Adopt the Arts right now, my charity. We're doing we're schooling the kids on Zoom. Yes. So. Y-
2: yes, and we'll we'll promote all that. Uh Matt, I, I mean this from the bottom of my heart, dude. Thank you so much, buddy. I hope uh you're happy and healthy out there. And uh thank you, bud.
1: You got it, brother.
2: Did I fanboy out? Who was worse, me with Matt Sorum or Burt Kreischer with Adam Sandler on Laugh-Aid? If you haven't seen that, watch it. Find Matt on all social media at Matt Sorum. If you want anything Matt-related, go to the website mattsorum.com and don't forget to pick up Matt's book coming in May of 2020 called Double Talk and Jive, true rock and roll stories from the drummer of Guns N' Roses, The Cult, and Velvet Revolver. Get it, everybody. Get it on Amazon. Listen to it on Spotify. (laughs) I don't even know if you can do that. Please subscribe to the 500 on Spotify. Now, we just listened to Cheap Trick from 1978. This week, Matt Penfield chose Brendan Benson. Check out his new single, Richest Man, released on Jack White's Third Man Records and available on Spotify. It's evident this dude loves Cheap Trick. Check out the link on our website, the500podcast.com. And if you are in a band and were directly influenced by one of these albums or artists and you want your music featured on the 500 website, send your song to 500podcasts at gmail.com. Make sure you put the album and the artist that influenced you in the subject line. Next week is Graham Parsons' week with his 1974 album, Grievous Angel. You've got some homework to do. Listen to the album on Spotify,
0: Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast